This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. He's like, oh, that stupid palace wall again. Not another one of you guys. Whenever that gets brought up, it just makes me think of Ocarina of Time. I can't remember if you have to, but there's a ledge you can climb up near when you're trying to deliver the letter to Princess Zelda. I imagine it has that like faded texture that lets you know that you can climb this Uh area. (laughs) That's totally what I was picturing as well. That is, yep, 100%. Man, that part is difficult in the game. That took me several tries as a young kid playing that game. What is up, people of the dragon? This is Steven, and welcome to another episode of Phantology. These episodes are always exciting when we review The Wheel of Time, and that's what we have for you today with Book 3, The Dragon Reborn by Robert Jordan. And like always, with our Wheel of Time reviews, I have Jake on the line. And once again, by popular demand, we have Caden, our special guest from before that is reading through for the first time. What's up, guys? How's it going, guys? Hey, Steven, Jake. How's it going? Thanks for having me back. Yeah, the people spoke and you are a popular guest, Caden. So we liked your perspective as a first time reader and Jake's perspective as an expert and my perspective as somewhere in between. So that is our uh, that is the optimal setup for our Wheel of Time podcast is what we decided. Well, I'm glad I didn't get left behind like Ben after the first episode. <laughs> yeah, he blew it by saying the characters weren't any good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we jump too far into it, let me just mention briefly that if you like the content we're putting out, Check us out at Phantology Books on social media, on our website at www.phantologybooks.com, which Caden actually designed for us. So thank you for that, Caden. And if you're a big fan, you can also hop on Discord and chat with us or be a Patreon supporter. Check us out on Patreon. We have some tiers up, including the Lord Dragon tier for really dedicated fans, right? <laughs> okay, so let's hop into it. Let's. We're going to start with an overview of the book, we're going to try to not do any series spoilers. We're actually, we're not even going to try. We're not going to do it. No series spoilers, guys. If anyone comes back to us and says they had the series spoiled for them, I'm hunting you guys down. So no spoilers past the third book. We're going to start with no spoilers at all, with just an overview of the book, kind of how it fits in, how it compares to the other two books. And let's hop into that now. I guess, Caden, as a first-time reader, you just barely finished the book. What were your kind of rapid reaction impressions on this book compared to the first two? Yeah, I just I think it keeps getting better and better uh, the further I get into it. Yeah, in fact, the third one's definitely my favorite by far. I really enjoyed the perspectives, like the different characters that were or that you're the perspectives you were reading from throughout this book better than the first two. Yeah, I thought the plot moved very quickly, and I thought there was it was very entertaining, but it still continued to develop on the world. So overall, I yeah definitely liked it better than the first two, and I'm going to keep reading. Yeah, they have like maybe one or two scenes from Rand's perspective throughout the whole book, like mainly in the beginning and then like one or two interspersed while like during the journey and then at the end and everything else like 
it's all Matt Perrin and the lady folk. And I really like that because I feel like Matt and Perrin are you're it's easier to relate to them as with Rand as the Dragon Reborn being the yeah. savior of the world. It's hard to be like, oh yeah, I I can picture myself as Rand, but Matt and Perrin you identify with a little bit more, which makes I feel like their story a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah, and Matt like had a major overhaul this book compared to the last two. He's like this is this is a book where he becomes one of my favorite characters, whereas before he was just this annoying naysayer the whole time. Yeah, I definitely used to think Matt was annoying. Yeah, and now Matt really glows up during this after he gets healed, right? And, yeah, and it goes fast. It's like zero to a hundred. All of a sudden, he's my favorite character. Yeah, after watching uh, uh, Matt's character in this book, I thought Perrin's was going to grow a little bit more too, which it did grow, and and I liked it. But yeah, Matt's blew up, and I thought Perrin's would do something similar, and it did grow, but it wasn't quite the same. Yeah, Perrin kind of continues with his his standard struggle of embracing or rejecting the wolf, trying to find the fine line there. And this this book really goes into um, more detail into that, kind of showing the dangers of completely giving in to the wolf, but then also the the pros of it and what he's able to do and how he's able to save people by accepting at least a little bit of it. But Matt, I feel like Robert Jordan realized this character was not working. Like he could not be a main character and continue being what he was. He needed a like a complete overhaul done. Well, wasn't he always going to be killed? I mean, he kind of goes back to the character that you see in the first book before Shatter Logoth, right? Yeah, that's true. No, you're right. Yeah. He gets more powerful. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't a, a course correction as much as finally getting getting back on track to what it was before. It's a good point. You also mentioned that you couldn't relate to Rand. I think that's good because Rand is getting insane pretty quickly in this book. So I'm, I'm glad you're not doing that. <laughs> we had like the first instance, I feel like the first real showcase of what the madness the taint brings in this in this book compared to the others. It's always been this threat. But in this book, you're like, wait, is he is he crazy already? <laughs> yeah, I thought that part, like without going to spoilers, I thought that part was well done because, yeah, I was not. Yeah, it kind of caught me off guard. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, this guy could could be going insane here yeah which has always been promised right i thought that would be more towards like the end like you know the big battle at the end you got 14 books leading up to that point i thought it would be to- more towards that end of it where he would start to go insane so to see that in this book was a uh it was a little surprising to me but it was, yeah it was interesting yeah that's fair it kind of leads you to wonder what's going to happen in the intervening 11 books right yeah, definitely. And it, it adds more credibility to the prophecies of him potentially destroying the world. Whereas if he was just happy and, and fine the whole time, that conflict wouldn't be there. Yeah, we talked about this some in our review of The Great Hunt, book two. And we asked you the question, Caden, do you think there's a chance that Rand could actually destroy the world like the previous dragon, Luz Theron, did? And you were pretty resounding and saying, no, I don't think so. It's going to end on a good note, you weren't sure how, but you didn't think there's any chance that Rand could destroy the world. Are you maybe rethinking that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think I said something like 85% confident back in episode two that he would, yeah, save the world and everything would be great. I'm probably at like a 50-50 right now as to him destroying the world or not. So yeah, my confidence has gone down. (laughs) I mean, that means that the series is getting more compelling because I think that little internal conflict that Rant has is really something that keeps you reading. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I feel like the plot points are definitely growing bigger, the problems, and it makes you want to keep reading. The fir- I think that was something the first one, or the first book, or the second book kind of lacked a little bit for me, was I didn't really see, or it's hard to see where the plot was going. 
Um, and I still don't think I've gotten the full picture yet at the end of this book, but it's definitely opened up more throughout this third book, uh, which I think you guys mentioned would happen. Yeah. yeah, one thing that happens in this book is you get a lot of minor characters introduced that are going to be important for the rest of the series, but you don't know that they're important as it stands now. So we're not going to discuss anything that happens with them, but I think you probably have an idea of some characters that have been introduced that like maybe seem a little extra important that have been fleshed out quite a lot and haven't had a role to play yet. It really is crazy how every as every book progresses in this series you'll get to know some more side characters but then it's like 50 percent of all the side characters introduced in the last book became or become not like main characters but they become like a standard array of supporting cast and so as the book gets or the series goes on you just get this larger and larger supporting cast throughout so yeah people in books one two and three that you think are just like minor whatever they they'll show up again and they'll get bigger and bigger roles. I think you've seen that a little bit already with Bale Doman. In book one, he seemed like someone who's going to be like never seen again, you know, kind of hinted at if you look like if you think about it, there's hints there. The fact that he had um, some trinkets that seemed interesting in his collection. But then in book two, he played a, a minorly critical role in you know, trying to save uh, Egwene and Elaine and Nynaeve and men from the Shan Chan. But yeah, things like that will happen. So there's lots of supporting characters in this book that'll be very important as the books go on. And then the rest will be just part of that supporting cast that continues. Yeah, like a TV show, we've got some recurring cast characters that slowly take on bigger roles as the plot requires, right? Yeah. I was going to say, I was I was surprised by yeah, some of the recurring characters, like the Children of the Light characters Yeah, that were in the first book that I think it was in the first book where uh, the captured Perrin and Egwene, and then they show up again, and that same character showed up in book two. And, and then, yeah, it, it continues on in book three with different Children of the Light. So when I read the first two books, I, they seem more like interludes that you're seeing something from a brief perspective, but that, that wouldn't continue. But it was a nice surprise to see, yeah, these these characters keep popping up and, and adding to the plot and intertwining where you don't think they would. And so it's a really cool thing that I, I don't think I've seen in another series. He, uh, I can't remember the number. We talked about it on the, the Black Tower podcast, but he has the most named characters in any series. Like at, at the end of the series, I, I don't remember the number, but it was, it was thousands of named characters and it's just crazy. And he mostly uses them for, you know, just as world building and like to let the reader know how the plot's moving along, but then he doesn't really throw them away. He'll just keep them in his back pocket to, to use later on and throw out there. That makes me want to reread the, I already want to like reread the third book. Cause I feel like I miss huge or maybe not huge but different things that i should have picked up on just because of all these different characters and so yeah it makes me want to go back and reread the series already just to see like uh, after like as a, from a different perspective how that influenced uh, the future plots yeah my recommendation would be finish out the entire series <laughs> and if you still want to do that then give it a shot keep the momentum going while it while you have it <laughs> yeah definitely not planning on doing that this week or anything <laughs> book three to me is like one of the <laughs> easiest of the wheel of times to read just because of how like the plot is just so well placed together it's like puzzle pieces with the different characters and where they're going and like how they interact with each other you have like three main three main plot lines and they're all doing their own thing but then they connect later on and it's just very it's a very tightly written plot in my opinion 
So that for that reason alone, it's one of my favorites to read. The story is pretty good too. Book four, I think, is my favorite of the series. Probably, I don't know. They're all really good, and that's mainly for plot reasons or plot occurrences, I guess I should say, like things that actually happen and and the world building. But just book three is just such a fun read for me. It was really refreshing too, because the first two books kind of had we talked about this last time had similar uh, plot points where there's like a great hunt going on, they're chasing something. And mm-hmm. so it was nice to have have different a different storyline throughout this one, and I think that added a lot to this story. That it yeah, it was an original plot, and it worked worked together really well. And while Moraine was chasing down Rand, it, it still wasn't like the main focus of the of every plot uh, of every person. However, I, it did it did kind of come together by the end, where it was somewhat of a similar plot line to the first two in terms of like I guess comparison from other books because. Later books, you really start to have all of the threads branching out. And this one is still pretty tight, like Jake said. Yeah, same same kind of climax-ish. Speaking of new perspectives, we get Moraine back again. Book two, she was all but absent. But like you said, in this book, we get um, her back uh, in a main focus line. And I feel like, I don't know, she comes back and force. She's not shy about anything. She comes back just as strong as she was when she left. I feel like going along with that, land kind of like, went downhill like he didn't seem as he didn't have as any i don't know as many cool parts or didn't seem to have as big of an influence in this book as he had in previous books so while moraine did yeah come back more powerful he sort of took a back seat his main interactions are with moraine but really his interaction with moraine is you know he he does what she tells him generally but then other than her it's with Nynaeve and rand when he's training rand with the sword like he did in the end of yeah, a little bit in book one, but mainly the beginning of book two and stuff. And then, you know, his love story with Nynaeve. And he wasn't really with them at all. So he <laughs> didn't have much to do except fight. <laughs> yeah, it, in general, in Wheel of Time, I think I could always do with more land moments. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah, for sure. But unfortunately, a side character, not a Taverin. Yeah. <laughs> so before we go too far, I think now might be the time to start jumping into some plot specific spoiler content. But before we do that, I also wanted to mention, Jake, you kind of glossed over this, but we were featured, Phantology was featured on another podcast on the Black Tower podcast. And Jake and I hopped on there to chat with those guys about Wheel of Time and just the fantasy landscape in general. So if you're a fan of this podcast of Phantology, check out them as well. They have a different feel than us, but really fun, really fun time chatting with them. Yeah, they they were great. They were so fun. Um, I think if you listen to that episode... I didn't realize uh, my mic sensitivity or when I was or wasn't muted, but you can just hear me pretty much laughing. Anytime I'm not talking, I'm just laughing um, in the background because they were just so much fun and so funny the whole time. And if you if you like Wheel of Time, you got to give them a listen for sure. Definitely. Okay. Thanks, Black Tower. Let's jump into the book three plot threads. We're going to be talking spoilers for book three. I mean, we kind of did some light spoilers already, but... Those were yellow. This is red. So we're, we're talking specific things that happens, who lives, who dies even. And the book begins, I guess we should say the second book ends with the conclusion of the conflict in Falme and Rand kills Baselmon, or does he? And then he declares himself as the Dragon Reborn. And book three kind of picks up with the fallout of those events. And everyone is just kind of together in this random valley place, right? They're in the Mountains of Mist, right? Sure, that sounds good. I think they are, which which is pretty close by to the the two rivers. So that's kind of an interesting 
thing to think about. Like he's pretty close to home, but also like as far from home as he's ever been. Are the mountains of mist different than the misty mountains? The misty mountains are in Middle Earth, so a little different. I know. I just wanted to get you singing for us. <laughs> oh, oh, that's not going to be me singing. <laughs> Kaden, you sing? <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> we got to have some serious basses for that song. The, those dwarves have some low voices. Yeah. All right. So here we are in the Misty Mountains, and there's just a few chapters of exposition. I guess you do get kind of an interesting prologue with the White Cloaks. Uh, who is this? Keridan? I think is the POV and you find out that he was the POV in the second book. He was Boars, and in this, in this uh, POV in the prologue, you get a merge all coming and threatening his family. If he doesn't hunt down the Tiberian, right? Yeah. They say they're going to um, kill a member of his family for every, is it every week or month that goes by without him having completed that. I can't remember. It's something serious. Yeah. <laughs> something probably, serious. probably depends on the size of his family. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if there's a hundred of them, if they're a really big family every day, maybe. So my question to you guys, and maybe Caden, let's get your perspective here, is why is this even a prologue? Couldn't this just be chapter one? There's nothing really all encompassing about these prologues yet. Yeah. As you started talking about the prologue, I was thinking back and I'm like, man, I don't even remember the prologue and I didn't feel like it even came into play. Yeah, so looking back, I it definitely could have been just a chapter, and maybe I should have paid more attention to it, or maybe I should have gone back and just listened to the prologue again at the end to see, you know, how it had any any influence. I guess this is a minor spoiler for the other books, but the other prologues are going to get really long, so watch for that, and they're going to have lots of POVs. I thought this was the the prologue was really important to kind of give that exposition of what happened in between chapter one of book three and the end of chapter or in the end of book two, you really get to see the fallout of people seeing Rand fight Boselmon in the sky and thousands of people have become dragon sworn, but with no dragon to lead them. So they become this chaotic force in the land and you get a hint at, um, so the, the politics from that, but also just how people are trying to take advantage of the situation and then one other moment that may be of note is there is a character who who hops on screen briefly, goes by the name of Ordi Gulp. He's going to be important down the line, but we don't necessarily know exactly who he is yet, although you may be able to piece it together if you're an astute reader. And my question, you mentioned Dragon Sworn. Why would you swear to the dragon at this point? Like, what motivation would you have to become a Dragon Sworn other than being a total zealot like Masima. I mean, you're going to just declare yourself as an enemy to Aes Sedai everywhere, and you don't even know that this guy's the real dragon? Well, Like, why are people swearing to time, right? Well, I mean, people did swear to time, and people did swear to Loghain. Like, they had their their followers because they were able to do things to convince people they were the dragon reborn, you know? Yeah, but but why would you want to join the dragon reborn at this point? Because you saw a vision in the sky of this guy attacking the Dark One. Is that not going to motivate you to shoot the last battle's going to be here any moment? I got to get on like the side of the light so, I, so we can make sure that the last battle, we win it, you know? No, amen. Look, if I'm one of the small folk living in a village somewhere, I'm, I'm farming somewhere, I'm not joining the Dragon Reborn until it's way obvious that I need to start fighting. 
why join too early? Why not let the, you know, your lords kind of duke it out and then follow suit? Well, here's the thing. They don't know that there are 11 more books going to happen before before we get to the end. They just see a vision in the sky of their savior attacking the essence of evil. Imagine, imagine if that happened today. There'd be plenty of people swearing themselves dragon sworn, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, I guess you have some pretty zealous uh, Trump supporters. Some, uh, And on the other side as well, we're not going to get political, but... <laughs> yeah, leaders definitely inspire some followings. <laughs> I don't even think it like has to do with being a zealot. It's just just that like fear of oh shoot, like think like the end of the world is coming. And also looking into the the politics of of like the land there, they're basically just a bunch of these little city states um, on that side of Randland. And so there's these huge portions of land that don't really have a central form of government they're just kind of doing their own thing and so this is like this unifying force of we saw the dragon reborn fighting Baselmon. you know i think they're kind of looking for leadership maybe subconsciously but like unify ourselves and like hoping for the dragon reborn to lead them that's a really good point because you don't see the people from camelin and carrion joining quite yet i mean those places are, are more stable yeah yeah they're more stable i mean they didn't see the vision you know as well but they're more stable they already have like other interests at heart you know what i mean they have their own nations to think about but like over there like they don't really have much exciting things to go for it's like they had no no sports team to root for and all of a sudden they got the dragon reborn the the best they could ever get so of course they're gonna swear to him that's true i mean i've had nothing to do for the past month (laughs) with covid19 so if there was a Dragon Reborn, I'm totally joining right now. I got nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, let's talk a little more about the plot. So Rand starts to become unhinged pretty quickly. This is the exposition into the story. Rand is still around. He's going to leave quickly after there is a surprise attack on the camp. And there's some action with Perrin entering the world of dreams. There's a little bit of action with the Forsaken. So it's just like a bunch of different plot threads that are starting to pick up. What did you guys think of the way the book started? It was a little slow, right? I, I didn't think it was that slow. Uh, I mean, you get that fact that they're waiting out in, in the mountains, but I still like all these plot points that were starting, at least as a first time reader, I felt like there was a lot going on that I had to pay attention to. So it, it didn't seem slow to me. Uh, I think it picked up speed as the book went. Like it wasn't like at full full pace, but it it wasn't slow. I didn't think it was that slow. and especially. Um especially when you don't know what's about to happen on the reread, you're just kind of waiting for, okay, okay, let's get this going. Let's get um, that Trolloc attack to happen so we can jumpstart the adventure. But I I think like the first time reading it, it's like, okay, like there's all these things that are up in the air. Rand wants to go to the dragon sworn to lead them and to stop the chaos. Moraine thinks that's a bad idea. And so Rand's, he's always been stubborn and he has this, he's trying to figure out what to do without being a puppet of someone else and also trying to figure out how to control this godlike power that he's all of a sudden acquired as well. And I actually thought that this part um, was one of the biggest parent moments in the book. Um, this is where he's dealing with, you know, succumbing to the wolf. And while that plays a little bit in the rest of the book, I thought this, this was the biggest moment. I think it was, it was shown. And so I thought, I thought that made the first part of this really interesting as well, that the, there was something big going on with him. Yeah, parent's pretty steady. That's his personality, but you do kind of start to see him with the wolves, with the dreams. 
and everything, you can kind of see maybe where he's going a little bit as a character. Okay, so characters take off. Rand disappears after talking to himself in a creepy way for a bit. I thought that kind of happened really fast and might have been a little jarring. It, It makes the end work, I guess. Him taking off or you thought him talking to himself was too creepy? <laughs> him becoming crazy, him getting crazy. See, I never took the the him talking to himself like that as him being crazy. I think it's more just the pressure he's under, you know, trying to make these plans without having the dark one know what he's going to do and without being a puppet of other people just trying to figure out what to do. But I don't know, I guess that's up to interpretation. He definitely has other moments later on that are pretty crazy. <laughs> I thought it was a little jarring. Uh, I was, I, I'd agree with Steven. At the end of book two, right, he's at this point where he's like, all right, I'm ready to accept I'm the Dragon Reborn, standing in front of the Shinarans, right? And it makes it seem like, he, I mean, in book two, he goes from being like a shepherd to like a lord and everyone like starts to really respect him. And so to go from like that viewpoint of him to, you know, suddenly going crazy, I felt like it was jarring. But I also felt that way from like the first book to the second where he went from the shepherd to the to the Lord, I thought there was like, he's kind of like bounced around several times in the past three books, his personality or what's going on with his character. He has like a lot of growth, a lot of changes as a character early on. I think it's fair due to the the pressure that the character is being put under. I think it it's realistic that way. But I can see what you're saying with it's more of a jump between books as opposed to a, a smoothed out progression. Okay, so Rand leaves and now we separate into two parties. One is the girls and Matt that are now off in the White Tower, and we don't hear from them for a little bit. And the action kind of continues with Moraine and Perrin and Lan, and they probably have a few other folks with them. But they are tracking Rand, and this is the first time that you really see Tavarin effects because they track them through this small city, and the city has just had all of these weddings. So in addition to the weddings, they've had a bunch of just really unlikely events happening. And that's kind of a fun little side effect of being around Tavarin that you're going to continue to see anytime that Matt and Perrin and Rand are around. Well, I mean, not always, but anytime Robert Jordan kind of wants to spice things up, he has some unnatural, exciting event happen and they say, oh, it's because of Tavarin effects. Yeah, I really liked how they kind of focused on the balance of it. Um, it really is just that unlikeliness, unlikelihood, I don't know, <laughs> the improbability of it as opposed to all good things are all bad things. It's just in this week, every good thing that could happen happens. But in the next week, every bad thing that could happen happens kind of showing the true, like true neutral nature of the pattern, according to the philosophy. Agreed. One other thing that happens is we come across a new character, Noam, Noam, if that's how you say his name, he is a man that Perrin meets who has embraced his wolf side way too far and has become just like a bestial creature, not a man anymore. Heron hears his thoughts or gets into the wolf dream with him. And he's just completely using his wolf name and, and he goes crazy once he's freed. I thought this was important for Perrin's character because it makes him cautious about turning over to the wolves too far. Previously, he's seen Elias handle his wolf nature pretty well. But here's the opposite way that Perrin could potentially go. Another part about that for this scene that I like is how he talks to Moraine. Up until this point, Perrin hasn't trusted Moraine at all. And then he kind of opens up to her and, and talks to her. And I like throughout the book, watching his and Moraine's relationship change. Because by the end of the book, he kind of was more willing to stand up to Moraine and isn't afraid of her. And at the beginning, he is. And so I think this is a good part of or, or the first start of the, of the change in that relationship, um, which I think is important for the rest of the story. 
This is the part where they teach Moraine how to tickle the fish and catch them. And she catches a ton, right? I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> Back to the, the gnome thing. I think it was a good thing to introduce, not only for Perrin's character, like you said, to show the um, the different paths that he could take and trying to find the balance there. But also as a reader, because up to that point, you know, all of book one and two, I was like, dude, parent, just accept it. Why wouldn't you? That'd be so cool. You know what I mean? Talking to wolves. That would just be awesome. And then like the dream, the world of dreams and all that. But then introducing this really lets you know, okay, there is a danger to this. It's not just this parents not being overly cautious in his hesitation to accept it. I, th- I just think as a writer, that's a good way to let the readers understand more the situation to kind of prevent that plot frustration that happens when you're just annoyed that a character doesn't make the decision that he obviously should make kind of thing. Still, I still want Perry to make the decision to try and figure it out and like be able to <laughs> just figure it out. <laughs> Cause you know, he it, it's possible for him to figure it out. And you, st- I think as a reader, I still want them. So like, all right, right now he's just like, he's very against it. He's like, I'm going to shut him out completely. So it doesn't happen to me. But I'm sitting here like, man, just figure it out so you can shut him out when you need to, but you still get the cool, you know, powers. So still got that frustration there. <laughs> it's the major Animorphs vibes, right? He's got his wolf morph. He's got to use it. Although he can only stay an hour and more for risk being there full time, right? Did you guys read Animorphs? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be like Tobias. Although being a hawk would be pretty cool. Spoilers for the first book of Animorphs. speaking of hawks um we kind of talked about the girls but um men was with perrin and moraine and rand at the beginning and that she gets sent off to the tower and eventually meets up with the other um elaine and nynaeve and Egwene. but she gives perrin that little cryptic viewing she had about a hawk and a falcon right i thought that was first book i'm fairly certain that's first book it's repeated for sure I can't remember if she does it first book. I know she for sure does it in, in the third book right before she leaves. Um, I love Min. I think she's one of the best characters in the book. Well, not this book particularly, but in the series. I really like her. I like how that, like her little parting message to Perrin kind of shapes his future, especially by the end of this book and, you know, moving forward with the rest of his growth as a character. Yeah, we can hit character rankings towards the end. We're going to do our customary power rankings for this book but thank you for your men fanboying jake well i was just fanboying i'm bringing <laughs> up the, the viewing because it has a like a huge impact like on on how Perrin ends at the end of this book with fail and everything okay we'll get to that and speaking of the girls Perrin and moraine plotline kind of pauses here and we hop over to the white tower and the first scene we see are our super trio of Egwene, elaine and nynaeve Blowing up a bunch of white cloaks. I mean, there's a reason, but it's a real bad decision, right? <laughs> yeah. How did you like that part, Caden? Yeah, I, I didn't really like it. I don't know. I felt like <laughs> their whole storyline was a little forced to me throughout this, this part. Even in the White Tower, like mo- moving on from the white cloaks, like it seems like they make rash decisions and there's no lot of logic behind them. And they're just kind of thrown along as you go. And you're just like, what are you guys doing? And why, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> Honestly, I think the majority of this book takes place at the White Tower. I may be wrong, but it sure seems like a whole lot of chapters were from their perspective, doing little politics in the White Tower. And if you hated that, I mean, it's going to happen more throughout the series. I actually liked the inside the tower, the politics side of it more than I liked when they go off on their own adventuring and they're kind of just the three of them. 
I feel like they were only in the tower for like three chapters. I mean, I don't know the actual chapter count, but it, that's what it felt like for me looking back because they get to the white tower, Matt gets healed and then his, you know, his plot line starts, but then Egwene and Elaine are raised to accepted and then they get sent off on their quest. That's how it felt to me. I mean, there's obviously some mooning. There's, there's a lot. Of, no, no, no. There's a lot of stuff in between. But I think you blocked out because it was boring. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I know there's some there's some mooning over Gallad and Gawain and, and stuff like that. And, you know, them like catching back up. But for me, like, I guess the last time I read it was about a year ago. So not recent very much. But to me, it was like, okay, yeah, they're here for a bit. And then their adventure begins. But back to the the white cloak thing, I thought I thought it was obviously a dumb decision. But also throughout the series, I'm always like trying to figure out like what can they do according to the the three laws or the three oaths. Wasn't that kind of self defense? So wasn't it allowed? Well, they haven't they haven't taken the three oaths yet, right? Yeah, that that's the whole issue. But Varen gets like way mad at them. Like, right? You need to be living as if you know you you've taken the three oaths because you're initiate of the tower and everything. But every time so like an Aes Sedai does something, especially these three, since they haven't taken those oaths, I'm always trying to figure out would this have been allowed? Like, it's kind of I feel like there's lots of wiggle room. But I do think it was a good time or a good moment to show kind of the PTSD that Egwene has from being essentially a slave. So kind of hit on her character growth and yeah, showed some rash decision making. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I mean, I always like it when the white cloaks get what's coming to them because they're super annoying. They're always in the way. They're never making smart decisions and they're just causing trouble for our heroes. So it's like, yeah, on one hand, take that. But on the other hand, it's like, ooh, that's going to have some repercussions probably. Yeah, it doesn't go well with their whole... um prejudice against the white tower you know it's kind of feeding those tarvalon witches man yeah (laughs) honestly i have to say about their whole the super trio's whole plot line in this book seemed kind of forced for how real a lot of other decisions are like a lot of other characters decisions seem to be like i get that swan chose them because she knew for a fact you know like in her mind knows for a fact these people aren't dark friends they're the only people I can trust with this. And like giving her the benefit of the doubt, she knows that they're some of the strongest in the tower, but also completely untrained. Not only untrained, Elaine's the only one who has any knowledge of like politics, but also none of them have any knowledge of the real world. You know what I mean? So it's just like, why would why would you think this would be a good idea to send them out? And the excuse is using the tools she has, but also I think it's more of these characters need something to do. So we're going to write this plot. It was a little unrealistic. And I think that Lorraine and Swan have, have plotted for forever. And it seems like everything that they've been doing is such a calculated move that yeah. for them just to like, yeah, to, to <laughs> use these three to chase down the black object. It doesn't seem like in their character to, or in her and Swan's character to, to do that. Yeah. Shouldn't Swan be maybe employing Moraine to do this or at least guide them as they do this? I guess it's kind of hard. Maybe it's hard to get a hold of her. She's not available. No service. Yeah. She was busy becoming super overpowered off somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just hit it a few more plot points along the girl story in the White Tower. So there's a gray man that comes and tries to assassinate him. That's kind of interesting. I think that might be the first time we see gray men, or at least it's the first time that they're actually named. There are some politics with Elida and Shariam. 
And I, I think that's how you say her name, the Mistress of Novices. And then you have the lengthy accepted test for Egwene and the blink of the eye accepted test for Elaine because it's not on camera. And then Egwene gets the dreaming ring, the dreaming uh, Terangarel, right? And then starts to kind of delve into what's possible there. And then Matt gets healed. And then the, the storyline really picks up once Matt gets healed. That's where it gets good. Any of those events from the Super Trio, from the girls, stand out to you guys especially? The Gray Man, I just think, I mean, that's an interesting one because you never really know who the t- intended target was. You know what I mean? It was kind of uh, it was kind of vague as to who is trying to be assassinated there. Yeah, one criticism I have of these opening books is it seems like anytime the characters are doing something and it's not quite exciting enough, Robert Jordan will throw in a random assassination attempt against whoever the current POV character is. I think every person in the first few books has been randomly tried to be killed by dark friends. Well, I mean, they of course they are. Look, They're... it's just getting a little it's getting a little stale <laughs> for me. <laughs> Speaking of, I think there's a gray man. There's definitely a gray man with Perrin and Moraine in one of the taverns that Perrin barely notices with his wolf eyes. So another assassination. Yeah, attempt. I'm not sure if that's before or after, but but yeah, yeah, they're always. Attempt. I mean, I, I never find these attempts too compelling. You've known that since book one, that the Dark One's trying to kill all of them. Well, then can they be more capable? Can the Dark Friends be better in their assassination (laughs) attempts? At this point, maybe they get some help from the Forsaken. They're just real bad at trying to kill these guys. I'm with Steven on this one. The way that um, the Aes Sedai react to the Grey Man, they're like, ooh, it was a Grey Man, and they're so scary, but like there's a little accepted like, who can barely channel, uh, you know, like, it's just a wilder, I don't know, she was able to handle him by himself, no pro- herself, no problem. So I, I see where Steven's coming from on this one. I don't know, especially the Grey Man in the Tower, that has, you learn more about that later on in later books, like, it has more significance than just... One thing I'll point out there is there was, there's still an unresolved mystery after reading book three of who killed him, because he had a knife in his heart after Nynaeve grabbed him with air. So yeah, we don't know what happened there, and you're not gonna for a while. Yeah, that's what that's what I meant. So it's like obviously there's there's something more there. The other ones, the assassination attempts. I mean, they got the tavern plot armor going for them, but okay. Yeah, I guess we just have to go with it. <laughs> All right, let's hop into Matt because this is where the story really gets good. Matt gets healed. As he's getting healed, he's talking the old tongue, telling the Ace to die to get off his back, and then he goes and he's awesome with the quarterstaff and takes down. Gowan and Galad. And then from there, he is able to get one of the letters of writ from the Amerlin that lets him do whatever he wants. And so he sneaks off of Taravalon, even though the Ace Sedai have told him he's got no chance of doing so. He meets up with Tom. And then his adventure really kind of begins as they head off to Camelin. So look, Matt gets real awesome pretty quickly. He's got a newfound power with his luck. That's really exciting, right? Yeah, I was I was super excited to see Matt really pick up right here. Uh, I, I was actually not expecting it to happen so fast, too. He suddenly just becomes, like, really cool. But it, it was fun to see his character, and I, I really like his personality. Yeah, his, his personality is great. Yeah, I, Steven, kind of with that recap, kind of skipped over one of the best scenes Matt has post-healing with the quarterstaff battle against the best swordsman that the tower has in its training right now. No, no, it, it was mentioned. It was mentioned. I said the names Gowan and Galad. <laughs> 
I had a as a first time reader, I didn't know about that scene because I mean that's before he you start realizing that Matt has all this good luck. And so looking back, I'm like, oh, is that is that just his good luck that he's able to beat them, or is that some other power, or is he just good with the quarter staff? I don't know. So there's questions there for me. I really like the scene, but I I still am not sure 100 what what happened there. I like the fact that he was good with the quarter staff because that kind of seems like the farmer's weapon, the common man's weapon, so to speak, that he would have been able to pick up in the two rivers. Unlike Rand, who we talked about becoming a sword master or blade master way too fast. Yeah, and then Perrin's skill with an axe, I guess, doesn't require any training. You just you just hack attack. I don't know. Yeah, he's young bull. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Matt Matt gets awesome. I agree with what you said, Caden. Uh, his his personality is just so much better now and, and so enjoyable to read from now. His whole point of view has that perfect amount of kind of that rebellious, I don't care what's going on, I'm just going to look out for myself, but with just the right amount of actual responsibility and caring about others. He tells himself he doesn't want to be the hero, but he is. He's yeah. good at heart. And so he'll he'll do something nice like he uh, coming up in a little bit. He gives money to to the girl in the in the barn where they're staying one night and yeah, he he makes some excuse as to why he did it and it's not because he's a good person and wants her to, you know, be okay or whatever. And there's just there's several moments like that with Matt throughout this book where you're like, oh, yeah, he's a he's a good guy at heart, even though he's trying to seem like he's big and cool. And and he does have some like he doesn't want to go rush and be the hero and dive deep in with Rand. Yeah, I think he's seen like seen what's happened to Rand and he doesn't want to be the guy who by default has to do things. But his own good nature, he's going to do those things anyways. And if anyone gets him to promise to do something, he'll do that no matter what. But he's just like seen what's happened to Rand. I don't want that to be me, like all that attention and all that responsibility. So I don't care about those things. But like you said, deep down he does. And everything he does shows that he, that he really does care. There's a good moment where after he goes back to what the queen's blessing in, in Camelin and he's talking to the innkeeper, Basil Gill. Yeah. How did I come up with that name? Oh yeah. I'm a legend. Yeah. <laughs> but he he hears Basil Gill describe Rand as a young prince, and Matt's like, "What Rand? He's he's a prince, and I'm his serving boy, or something." And that really kind of rubs him the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. One other moment that I really liked with Matt is I always love these scenes where you kind of have the popper playing the prince, and when he gets on the ship and presents the letter of writ from the Amerlin saying I can do whatever, and he buys the guy's cabin from him because he's got all the <laughs> money from gambling. That's awesome. <laughs> Reminds me of the scene from Name of the Wind. I'm not going to do any spoilers, but there's a really nice scene in Name of the Wind where a similar thing happens with Quoth, where you have the popper acting like he's the prince. Those scenes are always really fun because as the reader, you know what's going on and you can see it from the other perspective. And it's, it's those make for a lot of hilarity. I especially like that part, how he was purposely eating through all the guy's kitchen supplies. Like he's hungry yeah. from the healing, but also just he's just screwing the guy over for being such a jerk. <laughs> Well, then later on, doesn't he say he even just like started dumping off, dumping the food off the side yeah. of the ship once he wasn't as hungry anymore? Yeah. <laughs> Classic Matt. So to continue on with their storyline a bit. So he's met up with Tom at this point. They're off to Camelin to deliver the letter to Morghese from Elaine. And they get embroiled in some politics there because Morghese has become besotted with her advisor, Lord Gabriel, who seems like a pretty bad guy based off of the conversation that Matt eavesdropped on after using the same trick to climb over the palace wall, which I thought was kind of funny. And it was funny how Talanver, after Matt admitted how he got over there, that's the guardsman. 
that he meets up with Tal- Talonvar. He's like, oh, that stupid palace wall again. Not another one of you guys. <laughs> Whenever that gets brought up, it just makes me think of Ocarina of Time and how yeah. I can't remember if you have to, but there's a ledge you can climb up near when you're trying to deliver the letter to Princess Zelda. You have to like avoid the guards or whatever, but there's a ledge near that area. And that's ex- immediately what comes to mind every time. I imagine it has that like faded texture that lets you know that you can climb this uh-huh. area. <laughs> That's totally what I was picturing as well. That is, yep, 100%. Man, that part is difficult in the game. That took me several tries as a young kid playing that game. Everything in that game took me several tries. I did not understand it the first time playing through. (laughs) Anyway, so we know Lord Gabriel is bad, but that plotline is going to continue on in future books because for now, they just hightail it out of Camelin. And we kind of hop back over to the Perrin plotline. Before we continue, what are your thoughts on uh, Lord Gabriel? Gabriel. I can't say that word for some reason. Lord Gabriel. Just Gabriel. Yeah. 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 Not another syllable there. Yeah, Caden. Yeah, what did you think about the Lord? Who is this guy? Where'd he come from? What's up with Morghese? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so you think you know he's bad or you think he's bad. I think he's bad. And what one of the things that makes me wonder in these other cities they've been to, there's different Forsaken that have kind of assert, like put themselves into power. And one of those will come up against, you know, at the end of the book here. And so that I don't know who he is, really. But that's that's one thought I had is, is this guy a forsaken? And is he trying to, you know, gain power from or become the king, I guess? that That's my my theory as a first time reader there. By the end of the book, you know, at least three forsaken have been freed. Three more because two in the first book, three more have been freed and kind of taken up residence as like influential people and in, in larger nations. So that's a that's a pretty good educated guess there. Yeah, you have explicitly talked about Samael, who's ruling Ilion, and Bilal has been ruling Ter. Yeah. Or Tyr. Yep. And then Lanfear is mentioned by name, and Ishamael has been speculated about. So what, we're up to six on our first second count? So and like back to Gabriel, I th- I was kind of disappointed the first time reading that. I thought Tom would have an interaction with with more gays. Like I thought when Matt came back saying like a warning, I thought we'd have like okay, we got to go back again and get Tom to confront her and figure out what's really going on. I thought that was kind of a kind of a missed opportunity, but it makes sense for the characters at play. After hearing Tom's backstory, you think that he I mean, he's you know he's in trouble and that if he if more gays catches him or whatever, they want to kill him, but I mean, he obviously had an influential and cared about more gays. And so you think that he would you know, want to help out and make sure that everything's going OK there. So I thought it was a little weird that they just ran away super quick. Yeah, I thought like he had that bounty on his head or whatever. But I thought, OK, maybe he can get her out of the situation and then that would clear his his name. Why can't Tom just run up the magic wall and get into the palace as well, <laughs> you know, and have a secret audience with more gays? He's like, limber. Seems like everyone's doing it, right? He's he's at least got a dexterity of twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's a pretty high dexterity for oh, an old guy. Out, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but he's also pretty prudent, so I think he knows he picks his spots. Right, he's yeah. an experienced player of the game of houses from Carrion, so he's not going to put himself in in danger more than he needs to be. Yeah, that's actually something with Tom's character. I didn't realize how much his character was uh, defined by the the game of houses because uh, you don't get that at all in the first book, and then he's playing it in the second book, but. You don't know if he's just because that's where he is in, in Carrion. So that became something or a bigger part of his character to me reading the third book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that like his his whole thing with uh, Matt is he's trying to figure out with the letter 
has in it, whether like, why are people trying to kill Matt right now? He assumes that has to do with the letter and he can't figure out any sort of coded message or cipher in it. Um, and that could be another reason why he's more wary of just jumping in and trying to save more gays, you know? So these plot threads will continue throughout the series. Let's jump forward. I can tell you guys liked this part because you're eager to talk about it, but let's now switch over to Perrin. Wait, 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 wait. Another awesome moment is when Matt confronts oh, man. the guy. <laughs> I think this was in Caimlin still. I could be wrong. But when Matt confronts the guy who is told by Gabriel to go kill Elaine and the guy's using That's the- in tier. That's in tier? Okay. Pause on yeah. that. I can't wait to say that part though. <laughs> All right. You're excited for that. That part's awesome, man. All right. We're going to get there, Jake. But first <laughs> we're going to Perrin. Third time's the charm. I'm going to get us to Perrin, guys. <laughs> so Perrin has picked up a couple travel companions. He's picked up an Ail named Gaul, and he's picked up Fail, or she's going by Zareen. Zareen is her given name, but she's gonna. she doesn't like that. She likes to be called Fail. The Falcon. So this is the Falcon that we've seen in men's viewings. At least that's what we believe thus far. And Allegedly. there's not a whole lot of notable events here, right? Yeah, I think... Um, him saving Gaul and then fighting White Cloaks again is probably the most important. And then, and then, doesn't a, a tavern get burned down due to Dark Friends at some point on their way? They keep running into more and more Dark Friends, kind of tripping them up on their travels. It's very possible. Taverns are very expendable. Caden, <laughs> was there a tavern that burned down? I don't remember one. I could be wrong. I don't know. All right, let's hop over to another group of characters that has met up with Samael. Back to our girls, who've now hopped on a ship as well, and they're headed to Tyr because Egwene, I think, got some intel from a dream, and they meet up with Avienda and some other Aiel, <laughs> such as Ruark. Why, why did you focus so much on Avienda? <laughs> <laughs> just, just a cool name, I think. But cool this part is kind of interesting, because not necessarily because of the events that are happening, although there is a part where they get captured and have to fight their way out. But I thought it was more interesting because of the continued exposition into channeling, as in how does it work? You see Nynaeve start to do some healing waves or weaves, and Egwene is now able to see the weaves that are happening, so they're powering up pretty quickly. You see some Balefire even, uh, yeah. and then we're getting, a, we're getting a history lesson as well on the Aeol and the first Aeol War, or maybe the second Aeol War, with King Layman and the Tree Killers and everything. And I don't know if that is completely resolved, but it starts to kind of like build up this idea. And then later on in the series, you'll really understand what happened like 20 years ago at, at the beginning of all of this, right? Yeah, so you definitely know, like at, at the end of this book, you know that the Aiel are called the, the people of the dragon. Yep, that's revealed. And so they have a tie to, to Rand somehow. But at this point when you've, Perrin has saved Gaul and... Avienda and co company have saved um, Elaine, Egwene, and Nynaeve. We just know, and from book two, they talk about it as well. We just know the Aiel are looking for the Karakarn, he who comes with the dawn, as they say. And for you, Caden, like how obvious was it for you as a first time reader that they were looking for Rand? Like, was that pretty obvious or, or was it like, what did you think they were, their purpose was going to be? Yeah, it's a hundred percent obvious that okay. they're looking for Rand. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question in my mind. Especially with all the hints of how Aiel like he looks and everything. Yep, definitely. Okay. Yeah, so that plot line kind of continues and then we go but we start going back and forth more quickly as we get towards the end of the book. 
so now we have Perrin and Moraine and Lan in Ilian. Moraine finds out. I'm not sure exactly why they went to Ilian. Maybe wrong destination or something. They took the the barge down. Like she wasn't sure how Rant was going to choose to go to Tyr, whether by land or taking the boat. And so she took that down first because I think it was faster overall. Ah, uh, so Rand should have hung the lanterns to alert them of his path. <laughs> right. Two if by land? Or is it two if by sea? What is it? I really don't know. <laughs> One if by <laughs> land, two if by sea. I think that's what it is. Right, because of course we know from National Treasure that they leave the one lantern, but it was incorrect and it threw off it threw off Boromir and Sean Bean and company and the greatest movie ever, right? Definitely not, but I appreciate your enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we realize that Samael is now ruling Ilian, and rather than continue along on the barge, they're just like, let's get out of here. And they have a nice runaway scene where there are some dark hounds pursuing them, and Moraine shoots off some balefire at the last possible moment and fries them to crisp. Yeah, lots of balefire moments in this book. What are your thoughts on balefire? It's forbidden, right? Like in Nacho Libre? It is Way forbidden. too overpowered. <laughs> oh, Yeah. I think Quandiar is the only thing that can hold up to Balefire. Rand actually does successfully deflect or dissipate a bolt of Balefire that shot at him at the end of this book when he's fighting against Baselmon. But I think that's because they're in the world of dreams, right? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be because of that. It's just a weave. Deep cut for later. You'll learn later, Caden. It seems like Balefire, like Moraine can just uh, summon it a little too easily for how powerful it is. Like parents freaking out, shooting arrows at the, what, what are the? The dark hounds. Dark hounds, thanks. Yeah, so parent, parents, you know, freaking out, shooting arrows at the dark hounds. And Rain doesn't say like, oh, by the way, I got this. She's like letting him freak out. And then just like in one second, she just like blows them all away. And I was like, well, okay, that that's cool. Yeah, Belfar is pretty overpowered. I, I can't remember. Do they explain like what it actually does and its drawbacks in book three? Not Not in this book yet. Okay. You just know, the only thing I know so far is that it's forbidden, right? And that she's not supposed to know how, or I don't know if she's not supposed to know how, or she's not supposed to do it. You sh- I think you shouldn't even, like, she says something like, I would be, like, given penance for even knowing how to do it, because yeah. they don't want anybody doing it. So, it, I mean, it's, like, very OP, but it has its own, there's a reason you can't just use it all the time in, in world kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, we'll get to that in future books. So, jumping ahead a bit through everyone's plotline, I'm just going to put everyone in tier now there might be a few things that happen in between and jake this sounded like it was a highlight for you matt <laughs> takes down lord gabriel's man can't remember his name i think it starts with c awesome. or something uh yeah i can't remember his name but i mean just this whole book seeing matt's luck like be so crazy and like he said it was never as as good as it was on the the first day he realized he had it but man the justice involved in the scene where he's he uh, stops the guy and just how cool it is. Like he's the guy's using loaded dice and Matt's able to use the other guy's loaded dice to get the hand he needs. It was just amazing. It's just like a perfect moment. It reminds me of uh, Road to El Dorado. Did you guys ever watch that show? No. Yeah. Great movie. Anyways, they use some loaded dice in there, but it was just like, I felt like that scene was so the suspense was so high in it. And then when it all came together, it was just like, man, Matt is cool. He's my favorite character right now. I just like seeing, you know, this farm boy, like, become so, like, confident. Like, I, I like comparing yeah. that character in that moment to, like, his starting out. And it's really cool to look back and see, like, you see his progression from book one to that point. 
Yeah, for sure. So the the other big moment that happens as we start the action in tier is the girls are captured by the Black Aja in really kind of a pathetic way. They don't do much good here. Leandrin just bundles them up and puts them in prison. But I mean, what else are you going to expect? What is it? There's like five or six Black Aja against three accepted. I just would have expected maybe a better plan, but well, they Julen, were betrayed. As- if that's how you say his name. Yeah, he got he got compulsed into helping them. Yeah. Anyway, that's disappointing. They're put into prison. I think I'm actually more disappointed in the Black Aja at, at this part in the story. That I there's you, supposed Kaden. to be like 13 of them and they're these, you know, powerful Aes Sedai and like all that happens is they go to jail and then they break out later. Like I was I was expecting more out of the Black Aja. That, again, it's one of those things like their whole plot line in this book, chasing after Black Aja, seems a little little forced. Like, it's just not very realistic. I thought it was cool how Matt and Tom connect up to their storyline. Like, Tom has been developing this cold, and then they happen to be brought to the, the same lady who's taking care of them. I thought that was like like a perfect moment in a story where it's like, oh, and here's where our paths cross and everything lines back up again. And everyone's paths are now going to cross. Perrin decides to, he, that he needs to rescue Fael at all costs. Fael has been imprisoned in the world of dreams by a trap that was meant for Moraine. Perrin and Fael have had kind of this weird, like, I hate you type teenage romance going on. And now Perrin's realizing that he cares about her quite a bit. And so that's his path. Matt ends up climbing on top of the Stone of Tear with the Aeol and hopping down and then freeing the girls who are not thankful at all of him for helping them out. Kind of annoying. That's just when you start to realize how terrible Elaine is. She's just the worst, guys. <laughs> Beginning of the end for Elaine, for Jake. And now we finally have Rand making his way back. We've seen him a couple times on campfires and in the world of dreams. Losing it a bit. He's back and he's ready to take on Colandor. Colandor? Is that how you say the sword's Colandor. name? Colandor. What did you guys think of the final confrontation? Man, it's been a while, Steven. You're due for a reread. No, no, I'm getting all the names right. I'm just getting the pronunciations wrong. I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I like the, the ending or, or the confrontation better in this book than the first two. I, I, I mean, if we, you guys heard my problems with the last one where it seems like just a little too magical where he was like appearing in the sky. This one, it seems like, all right, he's there. He grabs the sword. He's fighting. Balls him on. He goes into, yeah, was it the dream world? Yeah. I, I thought it was cool. Yeah, exactly. That kind of explains why uh, the ending in book one and two were so confusing and magical is because they were also in the world of dreams, ah. but you just don't know it at the time. So that's why people were able to see the vision of it be- because of that. But yeah, I agree. This this finale was much more grounded, especially with how everybody was kind of there in the same palace fighting. And I think it was cool how Moraine was kind of taking on a big threat as well while Rand took on his own. So it's not just like Rand's battling the big bad guy anymore. It's everyone's kind of joining in on the fight. I like that Moraine got disabled during that fight, that even though, you know, she had, or she, she used that fire against Baal. Is that how you say that guy's name? Balal. That she, she, that she, you know, that, that brought her power a little bit more realistic that she couldn't just, you know, kill everyone. High points for me, the battling that Rand was having with, Baselmon and with Bilal previously. Low points were how quickly Bilal got taken out. Well, I guess high point for Moraine for doing it. Low point for Bilal, like how pathetic. You're Forsaken and yeah, I, I don't know. Forsaken is disappointed a bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. They're monologuing again. Yeah. These guys are way too annoying. <laughs> and then another low point was at the same time that Rand is fighting the Forsaken and having this epic duel, you have Perrin running around and the stakes are so much lower. And then kind of the same with the girls. I mean, I know that this conflict with the Black Odge has been going on for a while, but it just doesn't seem nearly as compelling as Rand's fight. Yeah, I'd, especially Perrin's. I'd say like the um, Egwene's fight, like it was really cool. Like I get Matt did save them, but they also were like about ready to save themselves with what they were able to do in the world of dreams. And I thought that was a really cool moment for Egwene to show off her her dreaming skills. But yeah, them confronting the Black Aja to save themselves and escape, basically, compared to Rand and Moraine taking on Forsaken. Just not the same level of excitement. Yeah, ultimately, they accomplished nothing, right? I will say Matt's entrance with him on the rooftops and then meeting up with Julian and the Aiel on the rooftops and using the fireworks that he acquired from saving the Illuminator, that whole thing was just, again, everything Matt does in this book is so cool. And it was just so awesome how he was able to be to besiege and break through the Stone of Tear that no one had been able to do for thousands of years, just with a little luck. That was fun with the fireworks. And one of the characters, I can't remember if it's Ruark or Julin, says like, oh man, you're a, you're a channeler. You're using Sidene. Here, yeah. it was just a firework. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so then wrapping this all up, Rand has become even more powerful. He's now kind of buddy-buddy with the Lords of Tear. This is where the next book is going to start, obviously. And then we have some more discussions on the seals. They find another unbroken seal. They talk about Ishamayil some. They speculate on the nature of Bozelman and why he left a human body behind. Because Rand, once again, believes that he's killed the Dark One. He hasn't learned. Does he not learn by the end of this book? I thought they really... No. He still thinks it's he's so done dumb. It. it is so dumb. Oh, really? Like, at the end of every book, he can't figure it out. It's pretty obvious as a reader that that, that was Ishamayil, right? Yeah, and Moraine tells... He, she tells a couple people that that's who she thinks it is, right? But Rand isn't present during that. Oh, really? I Like, my head canon, like, she told him, like, he's like, I did it. And she's like, no, you didn't. But I guess she just let him think that he did it. Dude, Rand is not listening to no Ace to die. No way. <laughs> I thought that was a good twist to learn as the reader, though, right? Like, the guy you thought was the Dark One was really just a Forsaken who's gone a little crazy over time. And explains why, like, he could be appearing to different dark friends, right? Like in the yeah the prologue to book two, at least during that throughout that book, you don't get how yeah how can the this guy who's chained up you know be appearing? So it it makes more sense. It answers some questions from previous books. Caden, do you know who Ashamael is specifically? No. Oh, I know he's a Forsaken. He's just another Forsaken to you. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure you can you can put the clues together. There's a part they talk about where he used to be like. Before he became a Forsaken, he was one of the people who like opposed Balzaman, like one of the, the strongest against him and then changed to be a, a Forsaken. So that's that's pretty much all I know so far. So yeah, so there's some speculation here with Ashamael. We'll learn more about him as time goes on. And then you get some more solidarity around Lanfear. Caden, do you feel like you know any more about Lanfear after reading this book? I don't think I know what I'm supposed to know based on that question. Okay, we're not going to go into that either then. <laughs> Lanfear <laughs> has has an additional role to play, and you'll start seeing more and more of her. And then the final random character who comes in is Berylaine, and she will be, I don't know, somewhat of another minor character, worth mentioning at least. You know who Lanfear 
she's been going by other names. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I know she's been appearing throughout. Like, yeah, this guy's a different yeah. people. I know she's one of the Forsaken. She appeared to uh, Matt in the tower right after he was healed. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And she's the one who appeared to Egwene and or the trio and told them where to find the fake remains of the Black Aja, like all their clothes and stuff that led them to tear. Are you able to put another name to her yet? I don't think so. I, I can't yet. All right. Not yet. Oh, Celine. Oh, okay. Is that who we're talking? Okay, sorry. I thought that was, yeah, I, I thought that was, I yeah, I figured that out. Yeah, that she's Celine, right, from book two. Okay, good. Glad to know you're not a wool-headed sheep herder. <laughs> I, just, I didn't know if there was, like, something else, like some other person that she was supposed to be, but yeah. How do you feel about the uh, the parent, the parent Fael, Zareen, whatever, relationship? Yeah, I felt. I think. I think we talked about this in the last last one. That it just was kind of out of place. It was unexpected. Didn't seem like yeah. there was a lot of build up to it. And then suddenly you're like, yeah, you're, like Perrin suddenly cares for her so much and wants to save her. And you're like, dude, you were so annoyed by her like two chapters yeah. ago and like why she was following you. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think their introduction, like their progression, was very good. But like as the series goes on, I feel like their relationship is pretty solid in the sense that it makes sense. We'll see what happens with their relationship going forward. No spoilers yet. Okay, so I'm calling that a wrap for the book. We're going to briefly do our power rankings, which we do for every Wheel of Time book. And this is more exciting because now we have more and more characters. So hopefully our power rankings start to differ from each other. And we don't all just say that Rand is number one every time. (laughs) Jake, lead us off with your top three from the book. I got to say in this book, top three, I'm going to say Matt at the top, just because his luck came in. I mean, as luck would, very clutch in so many situations. Everywhere he was placed, he was able to like solve the problem. You know what I mean? Nothing was ever really an obstacle to him. Well, I mean, there were obstacles, but nothing was. He wasn't able to ever accomplish something he sought out to accomplish. So I'd say him for rescuing them, for stopping that guy from trying to kill them, and for just his overall coolness throughout. Second, probably, man, I don't know. This one's hard. I'd say Moraine. Moraine came back full force with the Balefire, took out a pack of Dark Hounds. And number three, I'd go with... I mean, Perrin was cool in the World of Dreams, but honestly, he didn't know what he was doing. I'd say Egwene for her her discoveries in the World of Dreams, shielding the Isad- the Black Aja who were trying to... Like, that had them kidnapped. And then didn't she stilled one of them, didn't she? Stilled or at least shielded. Or shielded or something. I feel like she like she did some major damage in the world of dreams, though. That was pretty cool. All right, Caden, let's hear yours. Okay, after last time when I was unprepared, I actually wrote these down, and Jake just took my top three that I had written down. So oh, dang! Oh I, no! Wow! <laughs> I gotta go first next time. Uh, no, but I'll I'll still go with Matt as number one for all the reasons which we talked about. Like he was just awesome. Definitely my favorite character from the book, or yeah, this third book, and yeah, I definitely like grew a ton. So I'm going to say I actually liked Perrin. I'll throw him into my top, my top three as well. Just because, and mainly just because he was like totally fine jumping into the, the dream world to save Fael when Hopper was like, dude, you shouldn't come here. This is really bad. You, you could probably die. And he, he was brave and, and went through with it. And then, yeah, I threw Moraine in my top three just because in book two, she was in my bottom three. So happy that she's back and at least somewhat powerful. Yeah, return to form for Moraine. All right, I'm going to try to be creative with mine. I'll say number one, Moraine, because she takes out a Forsaken. That's not something that just anyone can do. Number two, 
I mean, it's Matt, but I'm going to try to go more creative and say, uh, let's throw Masima in there, maybe. <laughs> I, I really kind of like his character. He's kind of fun. He's starting to get this uh, Zealotist following going. Power ranking, though? This is based off of how well they did. So for what he's trying to do, he accomplishes it really well. He starts a following <laughs> really fast. Often Geladon, right? That's not. He doesn't start a following in this book. They no, they no. He does. They they talk about it. They reference a bunch of people following him, and then they say someone says like, "Oh wow, Masima's really done well for himself." I don't think so. He's with them in the mountains of mist at the at the beginning of book one, or at the beginning of the book. And then he leaves, and it's it's like a one or two line thing. But someone just says like, "Hey, Masima is off here doing this, proclaiming people to join the Lord Dragon." It's a thing. Okay. It's a thing. Fact checked me. All right. I'm confident. Based on my tour reread. I'm going with that. <laughs> and number three. Oh, I'm going to say Egwene. Yeah, I, I guess I was hoping that our top three would be more different and they weren't. Egwene was a little <laughs> annoying at times in this book, but she still did really well exploring the world of dreams. Perrin's up there as well. All right, let's hit bottom three. Maybe there'll be more creativity in the bottom three. All right, my bottom three. Number one, I'd say Elaine, just because Nynaeve had some cool moments of power throughout their journeys, and then Egwene did. And Elaine really didn't, she didn't really do much, at least from what I can remember. Are you going to choose Elaine for every bottom three? Will every book have Elaine number one? Maybe. We'll see. Did I do that the last books? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just piggybacking on your hatred of Elaine. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think ahead. There's, there's some books she does some cool things. It's not this book. All right. And then number two, Black Aja, Black Aja as a whole for number two. They sprung a trap that easily like they knew a trap was coming and they were still able to like spring the trap on them. And then they still failed at that. Like they just seemed kind of caricatures of evil, evil characters kind of thing. Like, oh, we're so evil, but they don't really have much more to them. And they failed at their their like one task. Also, they're their role didn't seem to be that important. They were trying to kidnap the girls to make Rand try to rescue them, but Rand was going there anyways. You know what I mean? Like they kind of seemed useless overall. And uh, number three, probably Fael. Fael was kind of <laughs> useless. I mean, she had like plot significance, but really what did she do? She got trapped by a Tarangriel at the end and that's about it. All right, Caden, respond. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> So, yeah, I had Leandrin in here to agree with Jake on the whole Black Aja. I just felt like the trap didn't go well. I felt like oh, just the whole thing. I, I, I wanted so much more. I already said that earlier, but really disappointed in, in the Black Aja. Second, Baal just was kind of lame and died really quickly. In fact, I'd extend that to uh, Baalzaman slash Shamael slash whatever he is. Yeah, both did not, not perform well. Like, even though he, uh, Shamael, fought with Rand. It ended really quickly and I expected more. And then I expected Ball to like at least have like a back and forth with Moraine. So that would just end really quickly. So I don't know if you want to count them as two and three, but I would also throw Lan into my bottom three because he he did nothing in the whole book and I was really disappointed. Disappointing for sure. Lan did not deserve that. Yeah. Alright, yeah, my bottom three. Mm, similar thoughts as you guys. I'm gonna actually say number one would be Swan because of her poor decision in sending the girls after the block Aja. Maybe it was just for plot reasons like Jake was talking about and didn't like, but her letter of writ ends up with Matt Cawthon, possibly the least trustworthy 
and responsible person in all of Randland, that is not a good performance. I thought we just said how responsible Matt actually was. Didn't we just get through saying that? <laughs> Deep down, but look, you're not going to give a gambler a letter that says that Tar Valen will do anything the bearer wants them to do. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, yeah, I guess I'll say the combination of the characters you guys mentioned in the block, Aja and the Forsaken, they were all kind of taken out fairly easily. And then I'll say number three, actually the Aiel, I just wanted more from them. I mean, I get it. They're being introduced in this book and that's fine. And I'm probably looking through this with the lens of someone who's read all the books and I can kind of see the significance they're going to have later on. But they didn't do much of anything in this book. All they were in there for was to say, yeah, you are the people of the dragon and they fought off a few defenders of the stone. They're going to get better. Watch for them. So yeah, those are my bottom three. Yeah, I do want to say some uh, honorable mentions of cool scenes that we didn't really talk about. The forge moment when Perrin gets back into blacksmith mode and creates the hammer. I thought that was really cool. A cool little uh, character moment for him. And has some great foreshadowing. Yeah. And uh, we talked a little bit how Matt or how Rand starts to go show his craziness in this book, but the part that where the lady merchant dark friend attacks him when he's traveling alone and he kills them all and then chops off their heads and places them in a circle or no, I can't remember if he chops off their head, but he makes their bodies kneel to him after, after killing them. Like that was probably top crazy moment for Rand. And it just never really gets addressed again for the rest of the book. That was so weird. Yeah. It's like, I'm adding Rand to my bottom three now. (laughs) It's like, Okay, Rand, you're way crazy now. Like, that's way worse than any any talking to himself about plans he's made. All right, welcome to the bottom three, Randall Thor. <laughs> Those are some other honorable mentions of things that happened. Okay, thanks, Jake. And thank you, Caden. Caden, are you into the Shadow Rising yet? Yep, I'm about two chapters in, so just started. All right, you're in for a treat. We talked about how this one was significantly longer. I think Dragon Reborn is like 29 hours on Audible, and Shadow Rising is... 45 or 55 like way longer yeah like 50 yep oh wow 50 hours of perfection (laughs) it's a great one okay thanks guys thanks for listening to another episode of phantology if you like our content check us out at phantology books and online at www.phantologybooks.com i will never get tired of saying that see you guys later see ya see ya thanks for having me